started by selling a service. It's probably the absolute best way to bootstrap a company to 1 million. In fact, we like use this method to bootstrap to 10. Makes you very good at customer success because customers want an outcome. They don't want software. After you know exactly what to build, then you build. I'm Pep Lyle. I don't do fluff. Don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win? This week, Lloyd Lobo, founder of Boast AI, the software company that helps businesses capture more R&D tax credits. Lloyd breaks down how he bootstrapped his company to over $10 million in revenue. We also talk about how he used consulting in the early days and his top growth channels. Let's get into it. So we start a consulting firm in 2012. Globally, hundreds of billions of dollars are given in innovation funding and R&D incentives to provide businesses with money who are developing new products, improving existing products. And it's largely at that point done by big four accounting firms. The problem is it's a cumbersome application process. It's prone to frustrating audits and it takes a long time to get the money from the government because what happens is your accountant comes at the end of the year and tells the CTO or a tech leader at a company, tell me all the R&D you did that meets this narrow criteria. So he called me and he said, this process is broken. I'm like, okay, let's work together. I wanted to jump at an opportunity to work with it. We started by selling a service. And, you know, in the VC, VC world, this is a very bad word, right? Like low gross margin, labor intensive, unscalable. But what happens is customers want an outcome. They don't want software. And when you're especially dealing with a regulated industry where governments and everything involved and people have to give you their highly sensitive data, it's hard to just launch a product and ensure they'll adopt it, right? So makes you very good at customer success because customers want an outcome. They don't want software. You don't have like buttons and widgets to hide behind. You get really good at consultative selling. And then after you know exactly what to build because you deliver an outcome manually and you write down all the processes and then you know what to build. And what happens is then as you automate that service, your gross margins go up, your profits go up, and then you can keep scaling. And, and as a result, you maintain, <laughs> you, you maintain max control with minimum dilution. Now, the thing is, because we were building that kind of company, nobody, we're not fundable, right? It's like, what the hell these guys are doing? You're not fundable until you are one. I used a similar path myself, launching first an agency in 2011. Five years later, I then used its profits to launch an e-learning business. And three years after that, used the profits from the e-learning business to fund building a SaaS company that's now Winter. Starting an agency costs almost nothing. You only need a laptop and you need to know things. A software company is another matter. Developers are not cheap. It takes a long time before the product is market ready. This is why most tech founders try to raise capital. Being your own VC is a nice luxury to have. We also worked on a chatbot in 2013 called Automatically. We built it, we launched it, couldn't get it to work over time, it built. And after that, came back and realized we have this consulting operation going. There's so many people who are paying us. Why not turn this into a software play? And so we incorporated Boast Capital into Boast AI in 2017 and barreled through 2017 to 2020, saw good growth. And then in 2020, July, we had a term sheet from a growth equity firm who bought like majority 52 to 3% of the company, which was a good outcome for us. 
if we wouldn't start as building a services company, that we would have probably been more attractive to VCs because we were making revenue and profits from the beginning, from the first couple of years. We had to, we had to pay ourselves. That's the function of being a bootstrap company. We, we went with the services first model, which forced us to bootstrap and, and, and a whole bunch, bunch of things, right? And, and that took us on that path. If I had to distill it down, these were the key five steps that happened. The first one was figure out an ideal customer profile that has a recurring need in an unsexy market that's not chased by the latest hot trend. So pick like a trend that nobody's chasing and write down like, who do you want to serve? What are the pains they're facing? What are the aspirations? What are the goals? What stands in their way of achieving that, right? We started talking to hundreds of people and honing in on the problem and figuring out if they'll even want this, right? You basically validate the ICP and the problem you want to solve. And when people pay you to try it out, you have validation. Then the next is like, okay, product market fit. Product market fit is they get some outcome and they don't cancel. They keep using it every year over year over year. So we started to see that. And, and what happened was once we figured the ICP and honed in on the problem by talking to customers, we offered it as a consulting service and got paid to do the work manually. Through that process, we got really good at honing in on what we were offering, a repeatable, scalable process. And then we built the first iteration of the product using Zoho Creator and Zapier. And it was janky, but it worked. But people don't think this way and they try to do everything at once. And then they have trouble. The problem is when you're a bootstrap company, you don't have the liberty to blow that kind of money. <laughs> and so it becomes more methodical. This is actually the smartest thing to do with a tech startup. Build the first version of the tool that's actually no code. When we launched MVP for Winter, we were using Webflow and Threadform to clobber together the functionality we needed at the time. And we did the work manually behind the scenes. You should only write code to scale when doing it manually holds you back. When you get to this point, you've already learned a lot, you have paying customers, and odds are good that you're building the right thing. Nothing worse than spending months building a thing that customers don't want or that doesn't work the way it should. And what we did really well, Tap, is parallel, we build a community. Because when we started the company, we started cold calling people, reaching out to manufacturing, construction, oil and gas, all those traditional tech industries that could pay money. Because in 2012, nobody wanted to do business with startups, right? They don't pay money. And we couldn't get any customers, man. They wouldn't talk to us. Imagine two guys saying, oh, give me your data and I'll give you money. Was that cold outreach? Cold outreach first. Because uh, we didn't have any money to spend on ads or anything else. We did spin up a landing page that we built ourselves on WordPress. But yeah, so it was hard. We started with cold outreach, cold email, cold call. And then nobody would talk to us. So we said, okay, you know what? Let's go to the events these people host. So we went to manufacturing events, oil and gas events, construction events. Couldn't relate yeah. with them. Like, they're like, who are you guys, right? We got really dejected. And we said, let's go to the startup community events. We're founders ourselves. We first launched in a small city in Calgary, Alberta, because my co-founder was there. We felt, oh, this is our tribe. They resonate with us. We're having great conversation participated in hackathons. We started having drinks and dinners with them. And like, they became our wife when we did the company, hanging out with all these founder events. 
So through that, we really got to understand them because we were them. That was the pain. Mm -hmm. And we started to build a reputation there and get some one, two early customers, three, four, like early customers. And all our competitors, especially the big four, would say, man, you guys are going to go bankrupt in six months. These guys are never going to pay. So I'm like, you're making fun of us that these guys are never going to pay. I mean, that's the only bet we can play. There's no other bet now. We can't play the bet that we'll go after your customer base and win your customers because that's not happening. Now, fast forward 2023, all these big accounting firms now have startup programs, but it looks so fake. All the events we were going to were high-level CEO platitudes, not tactical advice. So they'd bring these CEOs from big companies who talk about the aspiration of entrepreneurship. Now, to a founder who's at zero or one, that's not very helpful. I want to know how to get my first customers, how to do product-led growth, how to do conversion rate optimization, how I hired first employee, those things. Those, this high-level aspirational stuff is not valuable to me because I've already decided to start a company. So that was one gap. The other gap was the media in these small cities were not giving any attention to startups. So we're like, okay, there's two key things we could solve. Coming from Silicon Valley, we had a network. So we started hosting events where we would invite speakers who were maybe not 50 million, 30 million, 100 million in revenue, but 5, 10 million in revenue. To a founder at one looking to get to five or zero looking to get one, that's invaluable tactical advice. And our messaging then went from, hey, founder, I'm inviting to talk about his journey and getting to five. And we're going to talk about these three topics. We got 10 seats of the co-working space, just some pizza casual. They loved it. 10 people came. The next one, 20 people came. More and more people because kept it like small seats invite only. One day we had 200 people show up to the co-working space. And the guys running the co-working space is like, come on. This is not a pizza meetup anymore. Yeah. That evolved into a conference, which became Traction and Traction has now 120,000 subscribers. We've done con- big conferences, podcasts, etc. You spoke at our, one of our first traction conferences in San Francisco. If you're a small, especially bootstrap company, you can't buy attention. But marketing is a game of attention and you can buy a lot with money. Spend more, which is the easiest thing to do. You can hire more creators and so on. But like in real life, you can't buy true love. Real affection is worth far more than attention. No amount of marketing dollars can buy you what Taylor Swift's relationship with her fans earns her in loyalty and devotion. This is an opportunity for startups. While you can't outspend others with paid media, you can do earned media and build real relationships. Putting on events and meetups does not have to be expensive at all. Personal relationships open most doors. And if you're hosting your own events, you also get perceived authority and power. My agency became an authority in its space once we started putting on conferences. I organized my first conference with Winter while we were just two and a half years old. And when I say I organized it, I I mean it. I did the whole event management thing by myself because it's actually not hard. It's a myth that it needs to be expensive and that you need a large events team. The second thing what we did was we're like, nobody, no media is covering startups. We can sit and cover startups, but I'm like, who's going to read our blog, right? So I reached out to the local newspaper because I'm like, who will have a more higher domain authority site for the region? 
than the local newspaper. So I'm like, give me a blog. I'll cover startups. They're like, go away. We don't, it's not of interest. That's what they said. Then what I did was I wrote a couple of startup blogs on some second tier sites, also in the region and got them viralized, like through friends, whoever I covered, they shared like hundreds of tweets. Back then Twitter was big. And I sent it to the reporter, right? The key is to follow up. The reporter's like, well, this has got good traffic. Fine, I'll give you a blog. The first blog I called Startup of the Week. And I shared it with the founder I covered. And he socialized with his whole network, family, blew up. It blew up so much that in two days, the, the editor messaged me and said, if you write it every week, I will turn it into a print column. So now we got the second social proof, which drove two things. It drove us backlinks from a high domain authority site. And it put us in the newspaper. So now here's what's happening. Every 6 a.m. on every Monday, the founder is going to the convenience store to buy copies of the paper, take photos and share it. So that drove us an insane amount, like social proof, which partnerships with incubators, accelerators, customers, we became the good guys. And then we leveraged that social proof to host conferences, have speakers like yourself, Twilio CEO, Eventbrite, and, and you name it, everyone. Right? And, and so that journey was how we got from you know our first million to now 10 million. Basically, we just amplified and scaled it. So from zero to one and then one to 10, did your business strategy change a lot? No, man, it did. This was, it was literally, when you say change a lot, it got refined. Our business model stayed the same, it's still the same. Our customer base ICP has stayed the same. What Lloyd described here is usually the smartest way to go. Keep going after the same ICP if it's working. Jason Lemkin, the SaaS legend and founder of Saster, has said that the number one mistake he sees from 1 million to 10 million ARR is chasing new market segments, new categories, new areas where the companies have zero or almost no traction. Double down on what is working, period. If SMBs are your core, stay there at least until 10 million in revenue. Do not chase customer segments where you have zero or only token traction. So if you want to start a company, I feel today you got to figure out a market that's large and growing. It doesn't have to be a big one today. It can be small today, which was our case, the startup market, large and growing. There is a propensity to pay and there is an ease of access. Now, manufacturing or construction or oil and gas were large markets and there was a huge propensity to pay, probably much higher than startups. But if you don't have ease of access, then how are you going to start anything? If you keep banging your head and get nowhere. So you got to pick the market that gives you ease of access and then level up. And so the business strategy didn't change. I mean, in the early days, the community wasn't that defined. We didn't have a name like Traction. We started in 2012. We named it Traction in 2015. Before, until then, it was just meetups and a newsletter, meetups and a newsletter. And a lot of the things I think we're fortunate on because today, a lot of influencers or LinkedIn, business-to-business -business influencers, they're building audiences on LinkedIn for the most, right? The problem is these platforms, while great to build an audience, you don't own that audience, right? You don't have the emails of that audience. So if you don't engage them, if you can't get them to sign up for a newsletter that you engage with, if you can't get them to come to an event, you don't own that audience. And if the algorithm changes, 
you lose your engagement. And this is what all platforms do. Right? First, they show your followers the content. Then they start follow, showing your followers other people's content because they have to survive on sponsorship. And then percentage of your, your mind share from your audience keeps decreasing and decreasing. So it's very important to own your audience. These are things that you've done. That's how you built your community, your audience. Your newsletters. Owned Media is content marketing 2.0. Here's Anthony Canada, founder of Audience Plus, explaining why focusing on lengthy channels like Twitter and LinkedIn is only a means to an end. And what we really need to focus on is owned media. I'm not suggesting like stop posting on LinkedIn or Twitter or anything. It's actually quite the opposite. That's where our audience is and we need to be there too. But we need to reframe what we're trying to accomplish on these rented channels. Much like SEO and others, we're trying to drive people into an owned relationship. And again, for the, for the, in the consumer media space, that's called a subscription. We don't call it subscriptions in B2B. We call it like sign up for a newsletter or an opt-in to our marketable database. These like really inhuman kind of, you know, things. Um, but as we get folks to subscribe, there's an exchange of value happening um, that is rooted in relational context, not rooted in commercial context, at least initially. And so you can imagine like just by doing that, you're, going from something like, uh, at least in the B2B SaaS space, a one, one to one and a half percent conversion rate on your website to about a 10% conversion rate. So you can 10X the amount of people that are wanting to hear from you when you're not trying to explicitly sell them on the first date. So over time, uh, you built up certain modes. We had the community mode that is you know, hard to replicate, uh, brand relationships, all that stuff. What about the product side? Does the product have any built-in def defensibility? On the product side, what we're doing is we're collecting unstructured data from people, like your all your R&D data from Jira, GitHub, and all these tools, and we're normalizing it and we're marrying it to your financial data, your payroll data, your banking data. So now we have a score of your business's R&D, like people do for MRR financing. And so there is a defensibility through integrations with like big uh, platforms like Jira, GitHub, and a bunch of... Monday, or you name the tool, we have the integrations. And then the other one is, is the industry regulated? This is in an accounting space, the regulated industry. And so think about it now, I've collected 10 years worth of R&D data from companies in a system that I've normalized. Big four accounting firms, they've been doing it manually from their clients and they have to trash it. For the level of data I have on companies, like thousands of companies over a 10-year period, going into the 11th year, is, is a huge data moat in and itself because now I have, the, I have seen the R&D of the majority of the companies, right? Uh, how many companies can come and say, I have access to 1,000, 2,000 companies' intellectual property, and I know exactly how much they spend on it and what the financial outcome was it? Right. So I see there's a data mode. So now looking back, would you have advice to fellow B2B SaaS founders? Number one is what is your personal definition of success? And that doesn't mean money. That means if you had a few money, what would you do day in, day out? Write down your personal definition of success. And for some people, it is maybe, I don't know, booze, babes, and boats. And for others, maybe it is sitting in Bali all year long. So like, you got to write, what is your personal definition of success that brings you joy you could do for the rest of your life? Second, how much money do you need in your bank account to make that happen? 
Third, how long do you want to run a company for? Fourth, is there a version of the company you don't want to work for? And fifth, based on that, then you figure out, okay, what's the argument to raise? Based on these questions, who should I raise from? In the last two years, people raised high valuations, unicorn porn, and now it's a graveyard. That is advice number one. Advice number two is alignment. Great companies are built on great alignment. Alignment with co-founders, alignment with your VCs, alignment with who it is. Figure out the mission and the values that work to align. And a lot of people laugh at this when I say it, but as they have issues, as they grow up, it's, it's mostly because of misalignment on values. So imagine this, the two of us are co-founders and you're deeply care about control. And I deeply care about, you know, money, right? So we're going to be at loggerheads, but then we're going to start fighting about things because we're not aligned as the company grows. Because as soon as success comes, you're like, oh, where's, you know, why don't you tell me about this? And you're like, oh, you're spending too much. It's, it gets into those conversations. I think alignment is very important. I think if you can align on values and you can define your, you know, why you're doing it, like the personal definition of success, those are two check marks. And the third thing I learned, which is an advice for everyone, the key ingredients to building anything successful, whether it's a $100 million company or a billion dollar company, is three things. You got to get really good at communication. You got to be good at creation. And you got to be consistent. Communication plus creation and consistency will explode you. So, what did Boast AI do to win? One, they first delivered the product as a service, which helped them learn how to sell it, how to deliver it. They minimized waste by rolling out a no-code version before a true software product was built. Two, they found an underserved market and doubled down on it, sticking with it until 10 million in revenue. Three, they built an owned media machine based on content, events, and relationships. And that's how you win. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.